Now take your Bible and open to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We are in a verse 37. And I'm going to read down through uh, verse uh, 52. John 7, starting in verse 37, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, He who came to him before being one of them. Our law does not judge a man unless it is first it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, Are you also from not you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for an opportunity to come this morning to to worship you and to praise you, our God and our King, and we're Thankful for the privilege of uh, gathering together uh, physically. Uh, we pray for brothers and sisters, Lord, who don't have that ability. We pray your encouragement upon them and their fellowships. And uh, we pray for the, uh, the, the brothers and the sisters that are trapped in, in uh, various places in the Middle East during times of great, great difficulty. And we uh, pray for them and pray for safe passage uh, uh, for them. Help us to be uh, mindful of them and pray often interceding for them. Thank you this morning for allowing us to gather and to worship you. And may you exalt yourself and exalt our Savior. That's our desire this hour. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we start our study here this morning in the book of John, we are uh, returning to this portion of Scripture that some of the great theologians of the past have suggested. It's a portion of Scripture that really should be printed in letters of gold. Uh, because it contains some of the most uh, full and free invitations to mankind uh, of the gospel, and uh, that such great words uh, uh, that put forth the the good news that God has for mankind. Uh, The story, you'll remember, takes place in in the context of the most joyous celebration on the uh, uh, calendar in Israel, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a required feast where every man from the nation came from all over the region to the temple in Jerusalem. It was marked by the blowing of trumpets and uh, shouting. It was a jubilant mood over this uh, feast, this festival, where every day the water was drawn by from a pitcher from the pool of Siloam and taken over to the altar through a processional uh, led by the priest. And they took it back into the temple, poured the water upon the uh, 
altar in the midst of shouting and rejoicing of the multitudes. So every day during this feast, this festival, that remembered, again, God's provision for the nation of Israel and God's protection for them as they were in their wilderness wanderings, it was also a day, uh, an opportunity to remind the, fact, uh, the nation of the fact that God provided water out of a rock uh, that flowed when Moses struck the rock when they were passing there through uh, the wilderness. So every day was a day of remembrance in this festival. Every day, again, God dealing with the nation of Israel kindly, God protecting the nation, uh, God delivering, God providing for them their physical needs. It was also a celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, was a celebration that looked forward. It looked forward to the Messianic kingdom with the, uh, the fullness of the spiritual bounty of God, uh, again suggested by the water would come in full. Uh, the people's hearts and minds were occupied with such passages as in Isaiah 12, uh, verse 3, that says, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Amen? It's just a joyous time of celebration. So in the middle of this great celebration, this week-long feast, uh, on the last day and very possibly at the most climactic moment in the celebration, uh, it's where the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, in, uh, when they're taking the, the water, it's where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, steps forward and gives, again, one of the greatest gospel invitations anywhere. Uh, this most gracious, magnificent invitation to salvation, to forgiveness of sin, uh, to eternal life and entrance into heaven. Uh, verse 37, it says again, On the last day, at the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, and again, perhaps at that climactic moment when the priest is pouring the water, says, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, has the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now again, the words are no doubt filled with spiritual meaning. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, is giving an invitation for those who are not physically thirsty, but for those who are anxious of soul. For those who are under conviction of sin, for those who desire pardon, those who are longing for peace uh, in their conscience and peace with the person of God himself, for, for those men who feel the weight of their sin, who want forgiveness, for those people who are sensible about the importance of their eternal soul and earnestly desire help and relief, Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, I told you the depth of the offer, the depth of the mercy, the extent, the grace of God, that God loves this world of wicked men and women <clears throat> so much that he desires that, <clears throat> excuse me, men would be saved. He wants men to come, women to come, all to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. He offers salvation through his son freely. But the sad reality, as you and I both know, the vast majority of people in the world have no need for salvation. Or they feel they have no need for salvation. The sad reality of the world is most people are stupidly indifferent to the matters of their, of their soul. They're stupidly indifferent to the matters of eternity. Therefore, most men see no need of Christ. Although the Bible says the wages of sin and de is death. And the reality of death proves that we're all under the condemnation of that penalty. Yet God offers freely the 
fountain of life if men want to come from it. So again, death, which is universal, death, which points out the proof that all are guilty before a holy God, death, which points out the reality that we're all in a dying world as dying creatures with an eternal soul that one way one day will be judged by a holy God, that one day you are either going to spend, after you take your last breath, eternity, because we're all created in the image of God who is an eternal being, one day you're going to take your last breath and you're going to spend eternity in one of two places. Either heaven or hell. That's reality. That's true truth. In a world, listen, in a world that is full of lies, in a world that is full of confusion, in a world where nobody deals with you honestly, the word of God does. God wants you to know the truth. God offers you forgiveness and salvation through Christ. After you take your last breath, it does not matter who is in charge of this country that is falling apart and decaying rapidly. It does not matter any of the temporal things that upset us in time, temporally. All those things aren't going to matter one bit. Because once you take your last breath, you step into eternity, and you have left this world behind and are going into the next. And every person is going to spend either eternity in a place called heaven or a place called hell. That's reality. That's true truth. And again, the sad truth, the sad reality is most men yearn for those things that cannot help them, those things that are of no help to them spiritually. Most men suppress the knowledge of the truth in unrighteousness, and most men and most women turn away from the only hope of truth, the only source of truth, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, who I often uh, reference in this uh, book of John, says this, There is no clearer proof of the fall of man and the utter corruption of human nature than the careless indifference of most people about their souls. No wonder the Bible calls the natural man blind and asleep and dead when so few can be found who are awake, alive, and thirst about salvation. He goes on and he says, Happy are those who know something by experience of spiritual thirst, as the beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Until we know that we are lost, we are not in the way to be saved. The very first step towards heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. That sense of sin, which sometimes alarms a man and makes him think his own case desperate, is a good sign. It is, in fact, a symptom of spiritual life. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, as it says in Matthew 5, verse 6. That's the truth. Until we know that we're lost, we're not in the way to be saved. And the very first step towards heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we're all deserving of hell. That none of us can match up to, none of us can meet the standard of perfection that God has put forth in his word, that God has put forth in the world. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been with us in the evenings, that's what I've been saying out of of Romans chapter 7. The standard is perfection. That's what God demands to enter into his kingdom, to enter into his presence eternally. And the only one who has that perfection that we all need is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in the midst of this joyous celebration, and again, the offer of this most wonderful offer, free offer of salvation, in the midst of that, there's going to come into the story confusion, 
doubt, unbelief, and division. And the division is going to be great because Jesus always brings division. Jesus, when he spoke, he always spoke the truth, and the truth divides. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus in John 8 and 24, For unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, he says, you shall die in your sins. Peter stands up and boldly proclaims the truth about this same person, uh, Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, listen to me, Jesus Christ is the dividing line of all human history. He is the dividing line. He is the issue in all human history. He is the most divisive person who ever lived on this planet, as he claimed to be the only way of eternal life. Again, I've told you previously that with that one statement there out of uh, um, John 14, when he says, I am the only way, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he just categorically denied, shut the door to all other religious systems on the planet that says, no, there's a different way to heaven. There's a different way to the Father. He is the most divisive person who ever lived on the planet because he alone, when he spoke, he spoke the truth. And he spoke the truth out of love because God the Father sent him into this world out of his love because God the Father cares about mankind's souls. There is someone on the other side that does not care about your soul who wants to take you to the same place of eternal condemnation that he is going. He is the great deceiver. And all systems and all people and all teachers who don't teach the exclusivity of the person of Jesus Christ work for that side. They're ultimately liars. Jesus Christ comes into the world. He speaks the truth. Satan hates the truth. Satan uh, stands against the truth. Satan encourages always those who belong to him to stand, oppose the truth, suppress the truth. And again, for the vast majority of the world, because Jesus Christ speaks the truth, people don't want to hear it. And so because Jesus Christ speaks the truth, he comes and says that they are sinners in need of a Savior. People hate him. I told you that the most divisive thing I think that Jesus ever said is when he said he'd come to seek and save the lost. Men hate those words. Who are you to tell me that I'm not good enough to get into heaven? Well, you ought to read the Bible and tell you who he is. When he said those words in the context of his incarnation, men hated him then. And when he says those words through the inscripturated word, through the the word of the living God, men still hate him today. Men do not want to know that truth. And I've told you all through this series in the book of John that you're going to have to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. The most pressing question that every person who's listening to this series or every person who's on the entire planet for that matter is what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? You're going to have to deal with him. And you're going to have to deal with his words, with the truth of what he said. Because if you make the wrong decision, considering considering his person, considering his words, then your soul will be damned eternally. That's true truth. And tragically, over the centuries, we know countless millions of people have made the wrong choice concerning Jesus. 
And while you still have breath in your lungs, I'm begging you to stop and examine this truth of the word of God. I don't know where you're at on a spiritual level, most of you. God, through Christ, offers you forgiveness, pardon. And there's only one correct response to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes out of Romans 10 and 9. It says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead and you'll be saved. That's truth. We deal in truth here. I think I've said that before. And for us who have done that very thing, for us who have repented and humbled ourselves, humbled ourselves under the word of the living God, for those who have been recipients of God's kindness and mercy, those who have had our blind eyes open to the truth, the words of Christ for us are not offensive. The words of Christ for us are glorious truth. Amen? They are soul-freeing words. They encourage our heart. They cause us to trust Christ more, to love him more, to love the Father who sent Christ into the world, that sent Christ, the mediator, the only mediator, our mediator, our substitute. We've come to believe the truth that there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved except this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one, the only one who came and stood in our place. The one, the only one who was judged for us in our place so that we might be set free, that we might receive full pardon, free grace, mercy, granted again by God the Father through the substitute who bore our sin perfectly, the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, for us, his words are tremendous truth, tremendous good news, and they are words that need to be printed in gold, acted upon. We place our confidence in them, our eternal destinies in his word. And again, we've come as repentant sinners and we've desperately thirst for the living water that leads to eternal life. And we've come to an understanding that he and he alone is the one that provides that for us. Now, last time in our study, I gave a pretty long introduction to how to choose a church at the beginning of the sermon. So I didn't make it much past verse 37. So we're going to go back to verse 37 and start right there. Again, in the context, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And Jesus has come to the feast in the middle of the week. Why has he done that? Well, because the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. The religious leaders, religious authorities are seeking to kill him. He's come in the middle of the week and he's gone to the temple and he's taken up a position to teach, a position of authority. And the text tells us that there's much grumbling, much murmuring about him. Some think he's a good man. Some say, well, no, he's leading the multitudes astray. Some people are marveling at his ability to teach, his learning, uh, the fact that he's speaking truth, that he's speaking the word of God, that he teaches with great authority. And Jesus, on his part, has been rightly critical of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And he has declared to the crowd their basic ignorance, that they don't know him. They don't know the first thing about him, nor they don't know anything first, first thing about the father, his father who sent him. I've told you, the vast majority of the group, the multitude, are willing victims of their own ignorance. Victims of misinterpretation of Scripture, misinformation, and popular legend. Therefore, they're confused over the reality of who Jesus really is. Therefore, they flat out rejected who he is. They have refused to acknowledge the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is the, the, the Savior of the world. They refuse to admit, therefore, that they are sinners in need of that Savior. So Jesus gives a tremendous warning. Remember back up in verse 33. 
He says, look, one day it's going to be too late. One day it's going to be too late for men and women to repent and believe. God is tremendously merciful, but one day that mercy is going to come to an end. And Jesus says, you better set up, realize, listen very carefully. Time is running out. Verse 33. Jesus therefore said, for a little while longer I'm with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. So the one who's come from heaven is going back to heaven. But again, as I've told you previously, heaven's not for everyone. To the unbeliever, to those who hate Jesus, he says, where I am, you cannot come. Where is he? He's in heaven. But heaven is only for those who have repented of their sin and believed upon him. Not for those who hate him and stand in rebellion against him. Heaven is only for those who repented and believed upon the person of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, hell is the destination of every unbeliever. And true truth is hell is a real, literal place of conscious, endless, eternal torment with no way out, no possibility of escape, and no hope. Where the Bible tells us that the wicked will suffer under the wrath of God throughout all of eternity in eternal flames and in everlasting punishment with an ever-accusing conscience confronting them with the fact that they did not have to be there because God offered them, while they were alive in time, God offered them mercy through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I think the most terrifying thing, perhaps, of eternal hell is living with that conscience to know that you didn't need to be there but you rejected the person of Jesus Christ in time. Therefore, you have to, you will, before you are sent there, you will bow your knee, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because that's who he is, and you will live with that conscience knowing the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you spurn God's kindness, that God really is a just judge. Now again, it's here on the heels of this reality of coming judgment that one day God is going to soon withdraw his mercy that comes this most wonderful words of invitation this most magnificent invitation verse 37 now on the last day the great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried out saying if any man is thirsty let him come to me and drink and again I can't be definite but perhaps at this very moment when the high priest is pouring out the water upon the altar, that's when Jesus stands up and he cries out loudly so that everybody can hear him. He makes this most stunning invitation. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So again, it's the invitation for spiritually thirsty souls to come and find eternal life-giving water that he alone possesses. Verse 38 says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of life. It's another astonishing claim in the long list of astonishing claims that Jesus has repeatedly made over and over again in his earthly ministry that remove him from that ridiculous category that people try to put him in as he is a quote-unquote good man. No man, no quote-unquote good man, can make the kind of claims that Jesus repeatedly made. He repeatedly gave divine invitations. And he did it publicly. 
He repeatedly called people to believe upon their eternal salvation for him, to believe upon him and not to perish. If those are not the truth, if that's not the truth, if that's not the words of the living God, then you're listening to the voice of a madman. And if he's saying, put your eternal life in my hands, trust me, and that's a lie, then you're listening to something worse than a a deceiver. You're listening to a messenger of Satan. But if he is who he claims to be, if he makes the repeated claims to come to him to have eternal life, to pass out of death unto life, to never again thirst again, to come to the living water, then he's none other than God himself come in the flesh because no one but God himself, God in human flesh, could come and legitimately make the claims that Christ repeatedly made. Now again, look at verse 37 and look at the breadth of the invitation. The invitation can't get any wider. If any man. If any man is thirsty, again, it's open to everyone, to anyone. Whoever desires forgiveness. Whoever desires eternal life. Your background doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're religious or non-religious. So the offer is open and freely given to all men, that all men need to come to Christ. Why? Because all men have sinned and all men fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short of perfection. And again, that's what you need to stand in God's presence eternally. You need perfection. The Bible says that all men are in the process of perishing. That all men and all women are under the active judgment of God at the moment. John chapter 3 says, condemned already. The sentence has already been handed out. All men and women are just awaiting the sentence of eternal punishment to be carried out if they refuse to repent. There's three important words here in the invitation. They are thirst, come and drink. Thirst, come and drink. Thirst is an analogy here. It's a figurative uh, expression for those, again, who recognize their need on a spiritual level. For those who feel the burden of their sin. For those who realize that they are lost. For those who are thoroughly convinced that they are fully deserving of hell. Who are longing for mercy. Who want forgiveness of sin. Who are willing to be saved. Once you realize the reality of your true condition on a spiritual level. If you want to find freedom. If you want to find relief from the burden of your soul. Then Christ says you must come. You must freely act in faith. You must demonstrate that you've turned your back on your former life and all of the things in the world. You've abandoned confidence in yourself and and in everything that you once thought about yourself. And you come empty-handed to the feet of the incarnate grace and truth, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you come, and you come to him only because you know he is the only source of living water. And you come to the one who loved you so much that he came into this wicked world, the one who loved you so much that he suffered the horrors of eternal hell on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. You come to him and you come to Christ alone because you realize again that he and he alone is the only one who can satisfy your spiritual thirst. He and he alone is the only one who has made satisfaction. He and he alone is the only one who has made atonement. He and he alone is the only one who has made propitiation. 
He and he alone is the only water of eternal life that provides salvation for the thirsty soul. And you come to him immediately. You run to mercy as fast as you can. Because time is short. Eternity is coming. And you realize that Christ is your only hope. And there needs to be, with that running to Christ, a sense of urgency because you understand that you may never have another opportunity. Time is coming. Time is running out. The day to hear, the day to repent, if you hear the voice of the Savior calling, is today. Because as I've told you, tomorrow is the devil's playground. And the devil wants you to get religion. The devil wants you to get Jesus. The devil wants you to do all these kind of things as long as you do it tomorrow. Don't do it today. Do it tomorrow. Keep putting it off. But again, that's presumptuous sin because none of us knows if we have tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. You thirst, you come. The third one is you drink. Another figure of speech. It's the answer to thirst. You drink. That means you believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. You take him in completely. You assimilate him. You make him your own by faith. You freely take from him everything your soul needs. Mercy, grace, pardon, peace, strength. And you come to that fountain of living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you drink until your thirst is quenched. As someone has said, a running river through a desert does no one good if you don't drink from it. You drink from the fountain of eternal life. So Christ says to anyone, everyone, all, if you sense your guilt and the weight of your sin, come. Come to Christ. Come to me. Come to me and drink if you're thirsty because he and he alone can satisfy that spiritual thirst with an abundant free offer of salvation. And again, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope of averting judgment that is sure to come on those who have failed to repent. It's only the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him, rely upon him, put your trust in him. Affirm him to be who he is, the only Lord, the only Savior, and be saved. Now, on the last day, the great feast of the great feast, Jesus didn't cry out saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38. Then he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He who believes in me, he who turns from their sin, he who comes to me by faith as Savior, he who is now saved from hell, right, delivered from death and the wrath to come, he who is now united with me, in union with me, who, have now, who now has my life, my eternal life now flowing through him, he who never needs to be fearful of his eternal destination again, never needing to be fear of being lost, he who has had his life transformed and changed in time, brought into the place of blessing into the family of God, he who has had his thirst quenched by me, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He who believes as the scripture says. Now, most commentators say, well, you know, uh, there's not really one direct quote that actually says this following truth. So perhaps the words here reflect such passages as Proverbs eleven twenty five, Ezekiel forty seven one through nine, uh, Zechariah thirteen one, 
Perhaps Isaiah 51.11. Maybe Zechariah 14.8. Zechariah 14.8 says it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. So while there may not be a specific text, and perhaps Zechariah 14.8 is that text, the, the idea is there in the Old Testament. And most certainly here in the Zechariah passage. It will come in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Well, the problem with Jerusalem at the moment is there's no what? River. So perhaps the prophet Zechariah is speaking of the outflowing of the Spirit of God through the gospel. That's how the commentator F.F. Bruce would explain it. He says that it's from no earthly Jerusalem that living waters go forth. It is from the dwelling place of God and lives that are consecrated to him, uh, consecrated to him and believing hearts where Christ takes up his abode. He's saying, in essence, believers, once we come to faith in Christ, the believers are to be the channels left on this earth, the rivers of living waters. That's what he's saying. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, he who has reaped all of the benefits that I just read off to you, as someone has said, or Christ says, from his innermost being will show, shall flow rivers of living water. And again, as one commentator says, those are really encouraging words. But those are also really convicting words. Because the truth is, God never intended for us just to be the recipients of, uh, of the truth of life and to stop with us. God never intended us to be ponds in which the living water of salvation stagnates. From his innermost being shall flow rivers, plural, of living water. Again, when we come to faith in Christ, when we become the personal recipients of God's mercy and grace, we are to be channels through which that rivers of living water are sent to others. We are not just to be self-centered. Did I read someplace in the text of Scripture that says the command is to go out and make disciples of all the nations, to teach them to observe that all I have commanded you? Have I not read somewhere else in the scripture that says that we are ambassadors for Christ? We represent him. We're not to be stagnant ponds. We're to be rivers of life because now divine life is flowing through us. When we repent, when we believe, we come to Christ, we become those servants of God. And God uses us in time as a means of blessing and bring the message of salvation to other people. So when we receive the gift of eternal life, our Role as rivers, rivers of living water, is again not to be stagnant ponds, but to be conduits, rivers of life flowing, passing on that gift to other people around us. The edification of the saint, evangelism of the lost, again allowing that spiritual life that God has given to us to spill over and impact those around us. That's what Christ is speaking of here when he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. Now, I said that statement is both convicting and hope-producing. It's convicting because, if we're honest, not many of us can say, well, you know what, that nails it on the head for me. Man, that's exactly the truth about me. That's where I'm at. From my inner being flows rivers, plural, rivers of living water. What a blessing I am to everyone around me. The reality, if we're honest with ourselves again, for most of us, we're not more than just a drip. Maybe a slow leak. Therefore, the words come, we hear the words of Christ, and they convict us because of the spiritual barrenness 
of our own life towards others around us. But on the other hand, these are words of truth, and these are words that give us hope. Because again, look what it says. It says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, out of his belly, I think it says in the authorized version, out of his inward parts, that which was never satisfied by the natural man. In the natural man, the belly is always crying out for something that cannot satisfy. But once we've been changed, once we've been transformed, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being, next two words, shall flow. That's hope. Shall flow rivers of living water. That's hope for us to understand that our life may not currently match up, but they will. They can. You say, how, how's that going to happen? I read, I read the, the text of the scripture. It says that we realize that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're in process. Get that drip into a full-blown leak, blow out the end, and let the rivers of living water flow through you as you learn who the person of God is, the person of Christ is, as you grow in grace and grow in a knowledge of the truth. God, who is at work in you, will continue to perfect that. And you pray that God gives you that desire to be that fountain of blessing to those around you as you pray that you are obedient, and you are obedient. I mean, we, we, we're called to keep pressing toward the goal of the mark of the upward call of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should have an inward desire that we want to honor him, we want to glorify him, and we want to provide hope to others around us, not just so that they can get saved, which we'd like to see, but our real goal is we want to honor Christ with our lives. God deserves to be glorified. And it's the glory and the honor of God, the glory and honor of Christ that motivates our, our evangelism. It's a concern for brothers and sisters that wants us to come along and, and to uh, encourage them in the truth when they're having a, a difficult time. To the unrepentant, we're to be rivers of living water uh, who are uh, people, the unrepentant, who are really dying of spiritual thirst, and they may not even realize that. I, I read a, a little article or commentary or something. I can't even uh, remember where I saw it, but it was some explorers. I think it was around the turn of the century, uh, 1900, and they were on a Spanish ship down towards the mouth of the Amazon River. And some people came floating down on a canoe, and they were aghast because everybody on the ship was dying of thirst. And they're like, to the people who are still alive, like, what are you doing? We can't draw the water. It's poisonous because it's from the ocean, right? Salt water, can't drink it. Said, you don't understand. You're at the mouth of the Amazon River. There is as much fresh water here as you could ever possibly drink if you'll just dip from it. And I thought, man, that's a great picture of truth. Right? There's the fountain of living water bigger than the Amazon River, bringing fresh water into the salt, life to where there's nothing but death. We need to keep being obedient. We need to keep offering that, that rivers, rivers, of living water to those around us. We're not in the salvation business. I'm not in the conviction of sin business. That belongs to somebody else. I'm in the, would you like a drink of fresh water? I can tell you where I found one business. Amen? That's where we're all at. 
Christ has come to the world to satisfy our thirst. He desires to satisfy the thirst, the spiritual need of those around us. We are to be channels, not uh, stagnant ponds of that living water to other people around us, again, to the unrepentant who are dying spiritually. Thirst, they don't see their need for Christ. And then to other believers who are going through dry spells, because we all do. We need to be encouraged by the word, rebuked by the word, challenged by the word, lifted up by the word, the water of the word. And again, in large part of the activity of those uh, who are actually from their inner beings that flow living waters, they're constantly focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Again, it's Jesus Christ that fills their hearts, their minds, their thoughts. It's Jesus Christ, again, a growing love for him. That growing love for him allows that life to spill over. Takes the focus off of ourself and again around those, uh, to those around us who we can both bless and encourage. Because Christ is mankind's only hope. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 38 really is an exciting verse because it talks about the spiritual impact that a believer will have upon the world to do this world spiritually good. The unbeliever can't help anybody in the world. So if you're getting all upset by listening to unbelievers constantly on the nightly news, I've encouraged you there's a little switch that just goes click and a whole thing comes off. Might be a button, I don't know. There's a plug you can pull out and shut the stuff off because there's nobody who doesn't know Christ and can offer you one whit of help. They can't even help themselves. So if you're getting discouraged by them, unplug them, go to the only one who can have help, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually reveals himself in this book. I take up this book and read, and then you can be an encouragement to others to say, no, you know what, I really don't have to. I know the whole world's like crazy over every single issue and absolute chaos, but that's the kingdom of chaos. That's not the kingdom of light. And I'm not anxious about anything because my God is sovereign. He's absolutely in charge of everything. Amen? There's no reason to be fearful. Unplug it. As believers in Christ, we have the wonderful opportunity to make an impact, a positive impact upon this world. We have a wonderful opportunity to make our life count for both time and eternity. As from our innermost being flows rivers of living water. That's true of a converted man. Christ has come. He's an others-oriented God. He came to... uh, fulfill the needs of others we're saved we become christ-centered we become like christ and we center our life not on ourselves but on the needs of others verse 39 this he spoke but this he spoke of the spirit those who uh, whom those who believe in him were uh, to receive for the spirit was not yet given because jesus was not yet glorified now verse 39 is kind of a wholly inspired uh, editorial comment or a footnote, if you will, by John. He's speaking about the work of the person of the Holy Spirit through whom eternal life has been imparted to the believer, through whom he being the one who empowers us to bring that message of hope and living water and salvation to other thirsty souls. Now, make sure you don't misunderstand what John's saying here. He's not saying the Holy Spirit was not present here or not active in redemptive history because he always is. You can see him uh, from Genesis 1, Genesis 6, Psalm 51, Psalm 139, Psalm 143, Ezekiel 36, etc., and so forth. The Holy Spirit is always operative, always present. The Holy Spirit is always the author of repentance. The Holy Spirit is always the power behind regeneration. He's always the one who uh, illuminates the believer to understand the truth. 
All John is saying here in verse 39, again as an editorial comment or a footnote, is that the person of the Holy Spirit through whom eternal life is imparted to those who believe, this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believe in were to receive for the Spirit was not yet given. He was just saying, look, the Holy Spirit has not come at this moment when Jesus speaks these words as a permanent indweller in the, in the believer. He's just saying that was still future from the time that Christ is speaking. So I'm going to give a little editorial comment. He says that permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is going to come at Pentecost. When again, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer becomes normative for all believers from that time forward, permanently indwelling the believer. So again, at the moment that Jesus was presently speaking these words, the Spirit was not yet given. He says, here's the reason, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So again, John's making note of the fact that the invitation to receive the living waters, uh, again, is made. The offer is free to all, but the Holy Spirit is not going to be given in full until several months down the road, or six months from the crucifixion, so the day, the day of Pentecost after the crucifixion, following the death, burial, uh, resurrection, then the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ goes to heaven, he's going to send back the Holy Spirit, just like he promised John 15, uh, 26, John 6, uh, verse 7. Uh, but the Holy Spirit doesn't come until Jesus goes to heaven, then he sends him back. That's all he's saying. Parenthetical thought. Verse 40. And from verse 40 on, what you have is the responses to what Jesus just said. The different responses to the same words. Different groups of individuals who have listened to the same invitation but have responded to it differently because, again, Christ is the great divider of men, the great divider of mankind. Verse 40. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was, verse 43, so there arose a division in the multitude because of him. Now again, I've told you this previously, but Jesus, when he spoke, he was a very straightforward preacher, very frank speaker. He didn't have any interest in being popular. He was interested in the truth. And he never did anything to make the truth easier to receive. What he did was he made the truth impossible to ignore. As someone, and I can't remember who it was, but someone said of Jesus, he was no tame preacher. He's not one of these soft cell guys on, on TV. He wasn't worried about being relevant. He wasn't attempting to cater to itching ears. He wasn't even interested in people's felt needs. Nor was he interested in the popular culture. He just spoke for the truth plainly, candidly. He made certain demands very clearly. Lines were drawn so that people knew where they had to be. They had to make a decision regarding Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he said, and were they going to follow him, and were they going to believe what he said. And Jesus spoke in a way that always made it impossible for anyone to walk away from him indifferent. Many hardened their hearts against him. Many were deeply troubled by what he said. Many walked away angry and furious with him. But others had their eyes opened and they listened to what he said and they followed him. And Jesus said, look, this is the way it's going to be with me on the earth. 
this is the way it's going to be with me even when I leave the earth and my followers tell forth the same truth that I have told you. This is the reason why you have conflict in your family, either the the close-knit family or the extended family, when you start talking about Jesus. Jesus says, Matthew 10 and 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Because Jesus Christ is the great dividing line of human history. God incarnate divides people. Because everybody, again, has to make a decision concerning him. Whatever you might have thought the apex of human history was, let me tell you, it's the incarnation of God. Forget about human history. Human history is completely irrelevant. Everybody's going to have to make a decision concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And then what will your relationship be with him? And again, that decision that you make will determine your eternal destiny. Most men, again, tragically, in time, have and will stand against him. Some will humble themselves, repent, and stand with him. Verse 40 says, Some of the multitude therefore were saying when they heard these words, they were saying, Certainly this is the prophet. Now, what are these words? Well, these words could be anything and everything that he said, either written in the chapter or not even recorded in the chapter as he sat there in a position of authority and taught. But most certainly, uh, they include what he had just said in verse 37. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, certainly, this is the prophet. Now, the prophet would be the one whom Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and following. The Lord your God, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like from me among your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So the prophet, like Moses, would come and he would speak forth the word of God. And according to the scholars, there was no consensus in first century Judaism concerning the precise identity of that prophet. Some believed that he was a person like Elijah, Elijah-like, someone who would be like the, the forerunner of the Messiah, maybe Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets resurrected. Others said, well, no, 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 the prophet is really the Messiah himself. You had that mix of understanding in uh, first century Judaism, and you had that mix of understanding even today. Here's where you come to a great difference amongst many commentators. Many modern commentators identify the prophet only as the forerunner of the Messiah. But some modern commentators, John MacArthur, for example, would take the view that the prophet is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And he say, well, where do you get that from? It comes out of Peter, or, uh, words of Peter, but it comes out of Acts 3.22 and then Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Both Peter and Stephen applied Deuteronomy 18 to the person of Jesus. I'll read uh, the Acts uh, 3 passage to you. 
Acts 3 and 22, Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Verse 23, Acts 3, verse 23, And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now, in the context of Peter saying those words in Acts chapter 3, he's speaking in the context very clearly of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is speaking very clearly of Israel's rejection of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is denouncing Israel's rejection of Christ. He is calling them to repentance. Therefore, Peter says, as MacArthur writes, rejection of the Messiah would result in the loss of covenant blessings. That was a perilous condition in which Peter's hearers found themselves. Those who persist in rejecting Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, will forfeit God's promised blessings. They will be utterly destroyed from among the people killed and damned. That's what it means. Every soul that does not heed that prophet are going to be ultimately destroyed, right? So if you hold the view that ultimately the people here in verse 40 believe that the prophet out of Deuteronomy uh, was just a forerunner, a man, at least these individuals are getting closer. They're feeling like, well, you know, Jesus, at least he's a great prophet. Although their knowledge of him may not be perfect, they're at least convinced he's someone sent from God. However, if you hold the view here in verse 40, that they saw the prophet to be the Messiah himself, which again is the right interpretation based on the book of Acts, then you have to put this first group in response to what Jesus has said. You have to put this first group into the category of the convinced. This is certainly the prophet. This is the Messiah. Some of the multitude, we read it again, some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly, altheos is the word, meaning truly in reality. This certainly, truly, in reality, is the prophet. Therefore, if you take the understanding that they saw the prophet as being the Messiah himself, as some people did in first century Judaism, you'd have to take the fact that these people are responding and that they are genuine believers. These people have just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah in response to what he has just said. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And they've done that very same thing and they've come. Now, while the opposition to Christ was great, as I've been telling you, this would not be the first time that people actually responded positively to the person of Jesus Christ. Back in John chapter 1, we read about Andrew and Simon Peter's brother who comes to Simon and says, John chapter 1, verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. John 1, 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Peter, again, John chapter 6, speaking on behalf of the disciples, John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The opposition against the person of Jesus was great, but some people did believe. Now, since a lot of modern commentators think that the prophet in Isaiah 40 is the forerunner and not the Messiah, a lot of modern commentators would not see these people as genuine believers. Again, instead, they were just people who were close. P. 
people who are willing to accept a portion of Jesus' claims, but not all of them. And while it's true that there are many people today who act that way, people who accept certain portions of what Jesus claims, certain parts of his teaching, in reality, however, they don't come all the way, after really thinking through this issue, I lean very strongly towards the opinion that these people are genuine believers. And this response here in verse 40. Because all along the way in Jesus' story, in his earthly ministry, there were those who do believe. Opposition was great, but there's those who do believe. There's all stories, all kinds of examples of people who are thirsty and people who have come. And the story is not just a story of rejection. The story is the, the story of the Messiah who's come and collected people, believers, part of the remnant of Israel. Those who've thirsted and dip, uh, drank deeply from the person of Jesus Christ. Those who have listened to the words and have been deeply satisfied. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they hear, heard these words, were saying this certainly is the prophet, verse 41. Others were saying this is the Christ. Now, I didn't look it up in the Greek. I probably should have. You know what it probably says in the Greek when it says in the English, this is the Christ? You know what it probably says in the Greek? It probably says, this is the Christ. Others were saying, this is the Christ. So, if you take it very straightforwardly, which I don't know why you wouldn't, it seems to me here you've got some people who are at one time silenced by the Jewish authorities, as we read back in chapter 7, verse 13, where no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Perhaps you have some people here who are once silenced out of fear, intimidation by the Jewish authorities. And now, because they've listened to the words of Christ, they become convinced of his identity. Verse 41 again says, Others were saying, This is the Christ. Again, in words of another commentator, he says, Another portion of believing Israel, a remnant, those who entered the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. Here are people who accept Christ's invitation and come to him to drink of the living water that he provides. Now, I'll tell you, that's a minority position amongst the modern commentators. And I have no idea why. Because if it says what it says, give me a compelling reason to tell me it doesn't mean what it says. In a very straightforward manner, it says what it says. Others were saying this is the Christ. So again, many commentators would come here and say, well, no, 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 you don't understand these are just pious Jews. They're eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And a great portion of them were expecting a temporal redeemer, one who would vanquish Israel's of its oppressors, namely in the context of the Romans. Well, good. That's true. But it's also true that there are some Jews who believed they were sinners in need of a Savior. And we've seen it with the apostles. That's why they're following him. They believed that Jesus was more than just a temporal believer. Again, John 6 and 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? Remember how the crowd left? Jesus turns to them and he says, Are you going to leave like everyone else? He says, Where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's pretty straightforward. The woman at the well, John 4. I don't think she's very much concerned about a deliverer for the nation of Israel from the Romans. She's a Samaritan. She hears the words, 
of Christ. She's confronted with the person of Christ. She runs back to her city once she understands, saying, come see a man who told me everything that I've done. She goes to the people of Sychar. She witnesses. John 4 and 41 says, many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. If you take it on just a straightforward face value, it appears you have a group of people here who are convinced. I don't know why we have to, as commentators, get them unconvinced. Why can't we just read what it says? They've heard, they've believed the truth of what Jesus said. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So the first group is the convinced. Immediately you get the contrary. That's who comes next, the contrary. Those who stand in opposition to the truth. Verse 41 continues and says, but still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Verse 42, had not the scripture uh, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, that's true. They were correct in the sense that the scripture did indeed say that Christ would be the offspring of David and he'd be from Bethlehem. News alert. That's exactly who he was. That's exactly where he was from. That's exactly his lineage. Micah 5, 2 says the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12. Psalm 89, 3 and 4. Psalm 132, 10 and 11. Isaiah 11, 1. Isaiah 11, 10. Jeremiah 23, uh, 5. 33, verse 15. Amongst others, says the Christ is going to be a descendant of David. Born in Bethlehem. Jesus' lineage on both his mother and father's side. From David. City of birth. Bethlehem. However, these people, the contrary, these people didn't take the time to investigate the reality. They're exactly like a lot of people today who think they know the truth. They think they know what the Bible says, although they've never opened it. They might have one dusty on their shelf someplace. They've never opened it. And they think they know that the Bible is nothing more than a book written by men full of contradiction and errors. At least that's what they've been told. By other people who are in the like same spot who've never taken up the Bible and read. Read it. They've never taken the Bible, taken up the time themselves to take it up to read for themselves to find out the truth. Now again, the people who are in the context of the story are wrongly, are wrong because they assumed that although Jesus spent a lot of time in Nazareth of Galilee, that's where he's from. But again, the reality of the truth is he's born in Bethlehem. Just exactly like the scripture says of the Messiah. And again, they never took the time to see that both his mother and father's lineages was right back to David, which they could have done in the temple because the Jews were into keeping strict genealogies. Here's the kicker. If they desired to know the truth if they desired to know the truth. But the truth is, they weren't interested in the truth. Again, just like a lot of people today who like to talk, they're not interested in the truth. They're not receptive to the truth. 
because they're indifferent to the reality of the eternal nature of their soul and they're indifferent to the reality of the judgment that is coming upon the unrepentant sinner. Therefore, a lot of people in their pride make the eternal error because they don't know the truth. They make the eternal error of getting no instruction in the truth, no effort to know the truth. Because they're secure in their smug unbelief. Content, ignorant, non-believers who have no interest in the truth, which is an utter tragedy. Because now, without that knowledge of the truth, they will certainly face a holy God and face eternal wrath and judgment for their sin when they could have been set free from that condemnation by repentance and faith of the Savior, the one whom God sent into the world because of his tremendous love for this world. They could have found salvation for their souls versus eternal condemnation if they had a love for the truth. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, certainly, this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely, the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, from the village where David was? Verse 43, so there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And that's, again, exactly what Jesus does. Jesus brings division among men. He divides the unbeliever from the believer. He divides the saved from the, the condemned. He, he divides those who walk in light and those who walk in darkness. Sheep from the goat. The children of God from the children of the devil. You're either with him or you're against him. There's no middle ground with the person of Jesus Christ. And again, Satan, he's there in the background always. He hates God. He hates Christ. He hates the truth. He hates men. He wants to again see that men go to the same place of eternal damnation that he is going to be in. So he's always in opposition. He always stands and opposes the truth. And he always blinds the eyes of the unbelieving that they can't understand the gospel or see the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is alone is the hope of the world. And again, my friends, that's who we are to be, to be that channel of blessing as the rivers of living water flow through us to those who are thirsty. Verse 44 says, Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. I told you previously that all the events of Christ's life are on a divine timetable, God's timetable. God is sovereign. He's control over the events of every aspect of Christ's life. And nothing is going to happen to him until the appointed time comes. And again, we're still six months away from the Passover and the cross of Calvary. Therefore, while some of them wanted to seize him, no one laid hands on him because his time was not yet. Verse 45, the officers, and this would have been the temple guards who were Levites, who had been sent out on a mission to arrest Jesus back in verse 32. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, uh, they said to them, why did you not bring him? Verse 46, the officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. So again, we're dealing with the words of Jesus. Remember, I've told you all through this series, it's the words of Jesus. They didn't say the crowd wouldn't let us near him. They just candidly admitted it. It's his words. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. You know what? That's true because he's not a mere man. He is the eternal word of God. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. God stepped into time. Obviously, the temple guards here, they're impressed to some extent. Like a lot of people today, many are impressed with Jesus. 
But these guys, like a lot of people today, won't take the bold stand of faith in him as the Christ. Now, some people would come along and place these temple guards into the category of the confused. They're amazed. They're bewildered at the words of Jesus. Again, they say, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And while they didn't openly reject him, these religiously trained Levites also didn't repent and believe upon him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Therefore, I would take them out of the category of the confused and put them ultimately in the category of the condemned. Condemned. Because Jesus himself says, Matthew 12 and 30, he who is not with me is against me. So the temple guards hear these words. The Pharisees are infuriated. Verse 47. Again, infuriated with the officer's failure to bring Jesus to them. Verse 47, the Pharisees therefore answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? Again, it's a scathing rebuke from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, against the lack of action by the officers. Their lack of uh, alleged spiritual discernment as Levites. And again, the Pharisees, they're not hiding their anger. They're not hiding their contempt for anyone, for even who uh, anyone who even remotely has a supportive idea of Jesus. Verse 48. No one of the rulers, again this is the Pharisees speaking, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Don't miss the irony. It's a great point of irony here in John's writing. No one of the rulers. Well, if these people really were the rulers, if these people were really those who were looking out for the true spiritual condition, the well-being of the nation, they would have known the truth, but they don't know the truth. They would have been the first ones to recognize the fact that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't. They haven't. They won't. They're not interested. They've already made up their minds. They've already shut out the truth. It's their arrogant ignorance, their hatred, their disdain, their evil unbelief on full display. And on top of that, these so-called religious experts viewed themselves as the spiritual elite without ever any possibility of being wrong. Much more elevated than just your common, gullible, uneducated riff-raff of the common people who could be easily duped by the person of Jesus, not them. No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Verse 49, but this multitude, this crowd, this rabble, which does not know the law is accursed. Again, it's another point of irony. The truth is, it's these guys. These proud Pharisees who are under the curse of the wrath of God. Like all unbelievers. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe him and has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3 and 18. John 3 and 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Again, in verse 18 of that passage, he who has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, right? He who does not believe has been judged already. I said that earlier. The sentence has already been cast, right? Condemned, eternal punishment, deserving of eternal punishment. That's why the fool says there's no God, and the fool says I'll wait till tomorrow. Because you're already under the sort of condemnation. It's only God's mercy and his kindness that allows you to take your next breath. Today, if you hear his word, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. 
Nicodemus, verse 50, Nicodemus said to them, he who came to him before, uh, being one of them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows uh, what he is doing, does it? So again, they claim that all the religious leaders have uh, unanimously rejected Christ. Well, not really true. you got this prominent man, this Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, who came to Jesus back in chapter 3. Uh, he's a notable exception. He's probably not at this point a believer, but his mind is at least open to the claims that Jesus is making. I do believe he comes a, becomes a genuine believer, a follower of Christ by way of the scripture. Uh, John 19, 39, when he's there at the burial of Jesus, church history tells us he became a genuine follower of Christ. But maybe at the point here, the Pharisees, other Pharisees aren't aware that he's even considering the claims of Christ. They're certainly not aware that Joseph of Arimathea is a secret believer, a secret follower of Christ. So while not openly defending him, he brings, Nicodemus does, a procedural point uh, to, to the favor of a Christ to counter the murderous intents of the religious leaders towards Jesus. And, and he reminds them that there's a certain aspect of the law that doesn't condemn unless we give this person a fair hearing. But again, the religious leaders had already made up their minds. Verse 52, they answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Again, it's just words of contempt, scorn, mocking. The hostility, the irrationality of their hatred for anybody else but them. You're not one of these lowlifes out of Galilee, are you? One of these unsophisticated backward hicks. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, you know what? That's a little point of, point, point of reference. Uh, scripture actually says there were a few prophets out of Galilee. Jonah, Nahum, Hosea. Maybe some others came from that region. They're making this statement, which is not true. They're making this statement because they're filled with emotion, hatred, hostility. Because they've already made up their mind about Jesus. They have no desire to seek the truth. Again, Jesus was not even from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. So again, the ultimate question of the hour comes the same. What will you do with the person of Jesus Christ? He is the dividing line of human history. He is the one who came into the world to take away sin, to remove the guilt of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And at the moment when Jesus Christ came into the world and announced the fact that he was the Savior, that men were in need of salvation, that's when the war broke out. The big war against truth. And most men, because of their perversion, because of their love for sin, they're going to cling to that sin. They're going to fight against Christ. They're going to fight against the gospel. They're going to reject the person of Christ, and they're going to reject their only hope. Some people, because of God's kindness, are going to hear the words of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They realize they are true. They're going to repent. They're going to fall in love, deeper love with God, deeper love with the Savior. They're going to draw near to the one who has come on their behalf. They're going to confess that sin and really uh, willingly receive the forgiveness that he offers through, again, repentance and genuine belief. But you've got to make a choice. can't ignore the person of Jesus Christ. The most compelling person of human history, the most divisive man who ever and who will ever walk this planet. Some believe unto eternal life. Vast majority believe unto eternal damnation or refuse to believe and will get the penalty that's due them. Why would you be in that category? 
and you could come to the fountain of living water and drink deeply of the only thing that can satisfy your soul in this life, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for this um, time that we've spent in your word here in the concluding verses of John 7. And I pray you take your word and press it deeply into the hearts and the minds of all who have heard. For those who have not yet repented, that this might be that day of salvation. For those of us who have, because of your kindness and mercy, may we just continue to grow in our love for you. We adore you as our God. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the rich, free salvation that you give to us through your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.